people. It's time again. Richard Grove is starting season eight of his autonomy course. And as a graduate of season one, I can tell you that I doubt I could have gotten through the last 27 or 28 months without Richard's guidance, leadership, and friendship. So head on over to freemanbeyondthewall.com forward slash autonomy to get more information. I have a couple links there, a link to a video telling you about the course and a link to a 19 skills for life PDF that is free to download. Let's all get on Richard's level. Thank you. I want to tell you about an upcoming free-to-attend online summit by my friend Mikel Thorup from expatmoney.com. He's going to have over 30 experts participating to help you move your life, business, and wealth offshore. A couple of the topics are how to secure your own Plan B safe haven, how to legally reduce your tax burden, and where are the best countries in the world to find freedom for yourself and your family. Register now for free at expatmoneysummit.com, or you can go to my website, freemanbeyondthewall.com forward slash summit, and I link it there. I want to welcome everyone back to the Piquinones show. I'm here with Dr. E. Michael Jones. How are you doing, Dr. Jones? Good, Pete. Good to be here. First time on the show, I ask everybody to run down as much of their resume as they want. So tell everybody a little bit about yourself. Uh, my name is uh, E. Michael Jones. I'm the editor of Culture Wars magazine, the author of a number of books. Um, we're expecting the book, uh, The Dangers of Beauty, uh, coming out soon, a book on aesthetics. Uh, my other most recent book was uh, Logos Rising, A History of Ultimate Reality. And before that, the second edition of the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. So I've been doing this for uh, 40 years now um, and uh, have uh, covered uh, a number of different topics, but focusing most, most mainly on culture. Well, culture is what moves mountains and it moves civilization. So I think that that's where it took me a, a lot of years to realize that culture was most important. And um Thankfully, I've come to that and I think grown because of it. What I wanted to have you on today about was I'm doing this long series on World War II, a revisionist look, and we did a we did a quick overview of the Weimar Republic. And nobody can really talk about the rise of the National Socialists without looking into what happened in the Weimar Republic after World War One. So uh, when you take into account what Prussia was and then what it became after the Treaty of Versailles, starting with World War I, um, how do you see it progressing to where and what Weimar became? Well, I think we have to start uh, with the uh, instigators of the war, and that they were the English, uh, specifically Winston Churchill and Lord Grey. The, the fundamental pillar of uh, ang ang the uh, British foreign policy is the McKinder thesis, which states that if you control the Eurasian landmass, you control the world. And uh, that meant you had to block up any unification of the Eurasian landmass. So uh, the Kaiser made uh, the fatal mistake of uh, uniting Germany 
Uh, that happened in 71. Bismarck became his chancellor. Uh, at this point, they um, consolidated a, the workforce. And since labor is the source of all value, they became a powerhouse. And by 1910, they had surpassed uh, England as the most productive uh, nation in the world. At that point, the Kaiser started making overtures uh, with Russia, and he started building battleships, which contested, which would contest Britannia's rule of the waves. And at this point, um, Churchill and Gray lured uh, Germany into a war. Uh, that war uh, was fought to a, a standstill. Uh, but uh, at a certain point, the uh, the Jews got involved. They promised England that they could win the war uh, they, uh, because they were going to get the Americans involved. The Americans then got involved uh, uh, because of a combination of uh, factors, including blackmail of President Wilson, and basically uh, helped uh, turn the tide. Germany at this point still has some notion that they were dealing with civilized people, civilized countries. Uh, Britain uh, never felt that way. And so after Germany signed the armistice, uh, Churchill blockaded the ports and starved hundreds of thousands of Germans to death. This made an enduring impression on um, the German people and on one German in particular, namely Adolf Hitler, who felt that Germany had been prostrated, stabbed in the back, and basically had been left uh, stripped uh, forced to pay uh, uh, an onerous indemnity that was guaranteed to cause resentment. The other thing that happened during this period of time was that basically the uh, the Germany in its helpless state was now being uh, a prey to a different group of Jews. These were the Jews who uh, had basically taken over the Soviet Union. I'm sorry, taken over Russia and created the Soviet Union in 1917. They were determined to take over the rest of Europe as well. And so what you saw at this period of time was the creation of the Soviet Republic of Bavaria and the Soviet Republic of uh, Berlin. The Bavarian Social Republic is much more important for our purposes uh, because there was a strong reaction there. Uh, after uh, it was installed, the nuncio to the uh, Germany uh, a man by the name of Eugenio Pacelli, uh, who would go on to become Pope Pius XII, made a visit to the Wittelsbach Palace, and he wrote back uh, a letter to the Vatican because he was the diplomat. It was his duty to do this. And he said, the, uh, the Soviet Republic of Bavaria is basically, it's a bunch of Russian Jews. It has nothing to do with Germany. Uh, basically, the Russian Jews are taking over our country, uh, over their country. Uh, this was later used as uh, an example of Pius XII's anti-Semitism by Daniel Jonah Goldhagen, who once had a reputation but obliterated his own reputation by the crappy books he wrote. Uh, but it was true. It was not only Pacelli that knew this. The Germans knew this. There was basically a Jewish plot to take over Germany destroy it in its moment of weakness. And the name of those uh, Jewish plot was Bolshevism. Everybody at that time, everybody. And this was substantiated by <laughs> Johannes Rogala von Bieberstein's book, Jüdische Bolshevismus. Everybody at that time understood that Bolshevism was a Jewish messianic political movement that was determined to take over the world. So at this point, the uh, Bavaria 
which is a Catholic country, suddenly found its uh, identity and the um, National Guard for the state of Bavaria uh, basically marched on Munich, the capital of Bavaria, and took it back, took it back from the uh, Jewish Bolsheviks who had taken it over. Now, this left a lasting impression on Adolf Hitler, who was there during this time and watched it firsthand. He had been in the First World War. He watched this firsthand. And he saw basically Germany being taken over by these forces. Now, when the overt political force failed, you had Kultur Bolshevismus, a cultural attempt to take over uh, Germany. And that was also Jewish. And I'm talking specifically about uh, Magnus Hirschfeld, uh, a Jewish, uh, he goes, I guess people call him a sexologist, whatever that is. Uh, a scientist who was claiming that he was going to talk about sex in a scientific fashion. And it created in Berlin an institute called the Institute for Sexualwissenschaft, or the um, Institute for Sexual Science. Uh, this attracted a lot of attention. Uh, it confirmed a lot of what the Germans felt about Jewish subversion at this time. And the Nazis and National Socialists were made a, a big uh, uh, a big play about about this. It also attracted foreigners, and one of the foreigners it attracted was Christopher Isherwood, uh, an English homosexual who showed up. And after about five minutes there, he realized that what this Institute for Sexual Research was was basically a bordello, homosexual bordello. He said that in his memoir. Goodbye to Berlin. Uh, it eventually got made into a uh, movie, a musical called Cabaret. So this is the situation in uh, in Germany at this point. And this is the Weimar Republic. It's basically a, a Jewish takeover uh, of Germany at a moment when it's completely weakened. There's also an economic element going on here because the British uh, decided that they were going to destroy Germany financially. Uh, and the man who rose up uh, and tried to deal with this was Hjalmar Schacht, uh, one of the greatest geniuses of the 20th century, financial geniuses. He uh, basically orchestrated uh, a loan from the Bank of England, which was collaborating with the Fed at this point, and uh, resurrected the economy. But the first thing he had to do before he could resurrect the economy was destroy the debt. And he destroyed the debt by instituting massive inflation. And that's the famous inflation where they're carrying Reichsmarks around in wheelbarrows. It was done deliberately to because uh, inflation is the way you get out of debt. That's what he did. And then they started uh, with the uh, gold standard. Uh, at this point, the, uh, the an animosity toward Germany is growing. The Jews are heavily involved in it. There is an out by the 1930s, after Hitler takes power, after 33, the Jews declare war on Germany. There's headlines you can see about this. And this led to a reaction, again, a violent reaction uh, known as Kristallnacht, where uh, Nazi uh, thugs uh, broke the windows of uh, Jewish businesses. Now, David Irving makes a, a number of claims about this. He said that Hitler was upset by the excesses of Kristallnacht, didn't agree with it. But whatever it was, it got hu a huge amount of negative publicity uh, uh, to the point where uh, Father Cochlin, the American priest, the radio priest, 
gave a famous speech in which he said, uh, basically, uh, if you're going to hold you addressing the Jews, if you're going to hold uh, Christianity and Catholicism in particular as responsible for Kristallnacht, then we will hold you responsible for the Bolshevism that created Kristallnacht in the first place. So you have this contentious situation that basically uh, Hitler resolved by force majeure by simply abolishing the Weimar Republic when he came to power in 1933. Now, this intensified the ally, the British uh, animosity toward uh, Germany at the time when there are large segments of the American population, and I'm talking about America first, that political movement, that simply felt that the whole idea of getting involved in World War I was a disaster and they didn't want to get involved in another war in Europe. And they were a potent political force in the United States at that time. At the same time, uh, the the uh, British are putting the squeeze on ger the German economy. Uh, they're they're cutting out the loans. They're cutting them out. It's, it's basically the same thing that the United States is doing to Russia at this point, uh, trying to freeze them out of economic exchange. And at this point, Helmar Schach comes back into power. He'd been out of power. Hitler brought him back. He shocked. Really didn't want to work for Hitler, but he brought him back anyway. And this time, he he created really what was a, a true economic miracle by basically restarting the German economy with no gold. He didn't borrow a, a one piece of gold. He did it basically because he understood the basis of wealth, which is human labor. And if if he could mobilize German labor uh, using money, the government that government issued as a guarantee of future German labor, with the backing of the state, then he could resurrect the economy, and that's exactly what he did. This was the, the we're in the middle of the depression now. This is what Roosevelt should have done, and he never had uh, the political will or the intelligence to do it. He had half half-hearted measures like the WPA and things like that. We're trying to inject money into the economy, but he was crippled because of his background, and uh, they didn't. Uh, the, that uh, ruling class, New York ruling class that he came from, uh, were bankers, and they didn't believe you could do this. You could use government to inject money into the economy. Shocked, did it in Germany with things like the Autobahn, basically a huge government project that was the basis uh, model for our interstate highway system, did it purely uh, through political means. In other words, put all these Germans to work, pumped money into the economy, and the economy took off. And that uh, paved the way for uh, German, the, the re restoration of German industry, which had uh, uh, basically been uh, captured by the Allied powers, especially France, uh, Hitler basically marched into the Ruhrgebiet and just took it over. And now we had German industry and they started producing weapons and then that led to World War II. That's, uh, in a nutshell, my understanding of uh, the Weimar Republic and how it led from World War I to World War II. All right, let's start breaking some of that down because I made a bunch of notes while you were doing that. Um, okay, so what, I think one of the things, uh, pushback that you will get right away is you're talking about 
a Jewish plot to take over Germany. And you're talking about like Bavaria was basically taken over by Bolshevik Jews. Um, and it sounds like a conspiracy until you move forward a bunch of years and you're like, well, didn't a bunch of Jewish people take over a piece of land in the middle, you know, in the Middle East? Right. So Yeah. So there's um, there, there is no disputing this. There is a simple historical fact. The, the leader of the the uh, uh, the Soviet Republic of Bavaria was Eugen Levine, uh, a, a Russian Jew. Uh, I mean, basically, everyone who was surrounded, what Pius XII said was true. It was basically a Russian, uh, a group of Russian Jews taking over Bavaria that made a huge impression on everyone in Germany, but certainly the Bavarians. And it was there that Hitler started his movement. It was basically the Beer Hall Putsch of, I think it was 1925, 24, 25, uh, which started his movement. It failed. He went to jail. While he was in jail, he wrote Mein Kampf. But it was the beginning uh, of that movement. So it's indisputable. Hitler could not have orchestrated his attack on the Jews without adverting to Bolshevism. This is what made it potent. This is what gave made gave power to what he was saying. Otherwise, it would have just sounded like prejudice on his part. No, this was a a very powerful political movement at this point. Uh, just one country over, uh, uh, the Soviet army invaded Poland at the same time. Well, Poland is right next to Germany, uh, and if the if the uh, uh, it was the miracle of the Wisła which was basically Piłsudski attacking the Soviet army from the rear and destroying it. That was the only thing that prevented that army from marching into Germany. So it was a real threat. And if you're trying to say that it's some type of anti-Semitic fantasy or conspiracy theory, uh, you're not in touch with historical reality. I'm sorry. If you want to support the show, head on over to freemanbeyondthewall.com forward slash support. You can see all the ways you can do it, including right there on the website, which is the best way. Also, Patreon and Subscribestar, and I even have some cryptocurrency addresses listed there. So head on over to freemanbeyondthewall.com forward slash support. And thank you. Another thing I wanted to mention was um, Hirschfeld, his clinic there. I, I think that the more you start digging into that, it seems that there was more going on there than just it was like a gay brothel. Uh, it seemed like he was trying to introduce, like even back then, transgenderism, sex changes. I mean, this all right. sounds this all sounds like history is repeating itself. Yeah, you're absolutely right. He had the idea that there was a third gender, which is a kind of transgenderism. He did. Uh, he did a film, a kind of documentary film called Anders als die Anderen, uh, different than the others, uh, which was basically a promotion of homosexuality. He was promoting homosexuality. So in that sense, he was ahead of his time. There's also a connection to America uh, because uh, when the Nazis basically shut down the Institute for Sexualwissenschaft, uh, his material came to America and ended up in Indiana, of all places, the <laughs> University of Indiana, uh, with Dr. Kinsey. So Dr. Kinsey was the continuation of Magnus Hirschfeld's uh, uh, homosexual bordello. Now, that took a lot of cover-up. And the CIA uh, was uh, 
I, I'm operating under the premise that everyone knows that Time Magazine was the propaganda ministry for the CIA at this time. So uh, Time Magazine puts Kinsey on the cover when the Kinsey report comes out, and he's this square. He's got a crew cut and a bow tie. I mean, bow ties bad enough, but a crew cut and a bow tie. I mean, that, that's ridiculous. Uh, and he's surrounded by birds and bees. They're flying around there. And Time Magazine portrays him as an Eagle Scout. Well, he was an Eagle Scout, but he was a homosexual Eagle Scout. And believe me, by the time he got cooking as a scientist, the homosexual part was a lot more important than the Eagle Scout part. And the whole point of what Kinsey did was basically uh, mainstream homosexuality. Did it under the guise of doing uh, scientific surveys where he said 10% of the population is homosexual. That's ridiculous. It's certainly ridiculous as of 1947 or 48 when the first Kinsey report came out. Preposterous. But that was the goal. And it followed directly from Magnus Hirschfeld's operation in Berlin during the Weimar Republic. So you talked also about the blockade, the British blockade on Germany, which also coinc seems to coincide with basically the invasion of Bolshevism. Are those two connected? Was that were those done in concert? Well, that's a good question, because uh, Winston Churchill in 1919 wrote an article for the Daily Illustrated something or other in England, and he said Bolshevism is the biggest threat for Europe right now, and it's a Jewish operation. Okay, so that would seem to militate against any type of collaboration. But then we have to back up a little bit, uh, back up a little bit. Who's pulling Churchill's strings? Well, it's the Rothschilds. Uh, Natty Rothschild, Natty, I'm sorry, Randolph Churchill, Winston's father, died 60,000 pounds in debt to Natty Rothschild. And the Rothschilds forgave the debt because they wanted to bring him into their political operation. They wanted, they needed him to run their operation for. And so Churchill could never stay out of debt. And at every moment during his uh, life, when things got intolerable, some Jew showed up, like uh, Strakhoff, uh, David Irving brought that out, and bailed him out. So he was a... a, a, a under the control of Jewish finance in England, which was the Rothschilds, but there's English uh, Jewish finance in America. Jacob Schiff is the man I'm talking about, one of the big financiers on Wall Street, and Jacob Schiff was one of the major financiers of the Bolsheviks. So if you take it up a level, the opposition sort of fades away. And then over a period of time, the collaboration between the West and the Soviet Union became more and more overt, certainly under Franklin Delano Roosevelt, especially after the war, uh, after America gets in the war. The key figure there was uh, his Treasury Secretary, Henry Morgenthau, Jr. Uh, Morgenthau uh, was a Jew. He was full of hatred for Germany, wanted revenge, eventually implemented the Morgenthau Plan, which after World War II, after the Germans had been conquered, and basically that plan was to starve the Germans to death during the year of 1946, winter of 46-47, which has come to be known in German history as 
das Hungerjahr. Uh, that was Morgenthau, this is Jewish revenge. It annoyed uh, people earlier. It annoyed Patton. It, it caused a huge reaction in America, largely uh, led by Herbert Hoover, the former president, who was a Quaker and had gone around basically pro uh, uh, publicizing the miserable treatment that the Jews were inflicting on, on Germany at that time, conquered Germany. Talked about Semitic revenge. Uh, people could still use those terms at that point. Can't use them now, but they, they would use them then. So if, and, and the, the, the man, uh, his main assistant, Morgenthau's main assistant was Harry Dexter White, uh, a, another Jew, uh, this time a communist spy who was working for the Soviet Union, working for Stalin at this point. And there are people who say, it makes sense to me, but there are people who say that basically the plan, the Jewish plan, was to make the life of the Germans so miserable under ally, under the control of the English and the Americans, that basically they would beg Stalin to come in and take over the entire uh, country uh, and get a better deal. There, at, cer at a certain point, the adults in the room in America in the foreign policy establishment woke up and decided we can't uh, we can't continue with this plan of Semitic vengeance anymore, and so they switched from the Morgenthau plan to the Marshall plan, which basically injected money in and, and basically built back Germany uh, because they wanted it to be a bulwark against Bolshevism. Explain to me the you said that Schacht had to inflate the money supply in order to pay the uh, in order to pay the debt explain that to me well uh, i mean if you have a big debt uh if you expand the money supply you can pay off the debt i mean basically what what is what is the debt let's say it's it's a billion uh reichsmarks well print a billion reichsmarks and we'll pay it off i i i i was there a, i was a guy a speaker a man who was one of the governors of the fed uh, I think he's the Cleveland branch, and he was speaking at Notre Dame. And I said, uh, how do you plan to pay off this debt? And he said, well, we'll basically raise interest rates. It's that simple. If you inflate the economy, that's how the government does it here in the United States. They basically keep up with the debt by inflating the currency, but they, want to, they do it in a much more gradual, uh, unobtrusive way. Otherwise, it leads to inflation, which is precisely what happened here because of the idiots who are in charge of the economy right now. But that's basically how you get rid of debt. You inflate it. You inflate the currency. They've always, this has always been the case. I mean, back in Rome, the problem was you to inflate the currency, you had to basically melt down all those silver coins and mix them with lead and reissue them. Uh, so you reissue twice as much, twice as much money, but everything costs twice as much now. And so it becomes a, a, a losing game. But that's always the way you get deal with debt, sovereign debt, I mean. And also one thing that you, you had brought up was you, you seem to be, when you say that labor is what drives an economy, that seems to hark, be hearkening back to Marxism and his labor theory of value, and it brings right, right. Up, to Bolshev, up to Bolshevism. Right. right. First of all, I, I said labor is the source of all value. Now, uh, Karl Marx said that. That's true. But Adam Smith said it too, and he wasn't a Marxist. And John Locke said it before Adam Smith, and he's not a Marxist. And Pope John Paul II said it, and he's not a Marxist. 
So why would all these people say it? Well, it's because it's true. Labor is the source of all value. Now, Karl Marx picked it up because he was an English economist. He may have come from Germany, but he spent all his time in the library in London uh, doing research into English economics. So that's, that's where he got the idea. He was also a materialist, which uh, ruined his economic theory uh, because he couldn't understand labor at this point. And so the mistake that Marx made was uh, trying to derive a price for a product based on the amount of labor that went into it. Can't do that. You will never just. But the point I'm trying to make here is just because you can't derive a price for an object for an article doesn't mean that labor isn't the source of all value. Price is a function of the market. And so you have a situation where, uh, you know, water. Well, water is essential to life, but is it expensive? Well, most of the time, no. If you're if you're in a, a rock concert in the middle of August and you're dying of thirst, yeah, yeah, the guy will charge you ten dollars for a bottle of water. But generally, there's so much of it uh, that it doesn't cost a lot. Why is gold and diamond, on the other hand, they're very expensive, but you don't need them at, at all. This is all because you need a market to basically adjudicate a price. And you can't just come up with the amount of labor in it. This is uh, uh, the other, uh, Ricardo did this, another English economist talked about wine in Portugal. Well, it just kind of happens. It's, you just plant it, it does well, you great, make great wine, and it doesn't require a lot of labor. Uh, you could have uh, try to plant vineyards in Iceland. And you spend a lot of labor and a lot of energy and so on and so forth. And you come up with crappy wine. So this, uh, it doesn't change the fact that you can't get wine without labor. And wine is valuable. The only reason it's valuable is because uh, you applied labor to some type of nature, natural resource, which is God's labor. Uh, Marx didn't understand that because he was an atheist. But I mean, that's the fundamental principle that we're dealing with here. All right. I wanted to get into this because I tend to see a lot of similarities between what was happening in 1920s Weimar and what's going on now. Um, I've read reports of pornography being rampant. And I mean, and people in the United States really hate this term because it is connected to the Nazis, but the term degeneracy. And there's a reason why they use that term, but it seems like everything that was done to punish the people in Weimar to basically weaken it so much that the Soviet, you know, the Bolsheviks could come in and take it over was planned out. <laughs> it seems like a lot of what we're seeing right now, too, is planned out. Okay, so what's the common denominator between Weimar in the 1920s and America now? What's the common denominator? You tell me. Jewish control of the culture. It's it's That's kind of common, hard. It's, it's kind of hard to not go on Twitter and look at the and look at the people who are promoting all this stuff and look, look at every, and not be able to notice that. Right. Yeah, let's take pornography, for example. Pornography is a Jewish operation, has always been a Jewish operation from start to finish. Now, I wrote an article on that uh, uh, based on, you know, research, uh, uh, looking into the thing. It was called an anti-Semite. Okay? 
Now, that was in 2002, I believe. That's what got me started doing the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. Anyway, Professor Abrams, Nathan Abrams, I believe, from England, takes my article and basically just rewrites it a little bit and publishes it in the Jewish Quarterly, and he says the same thing. Well, wait a minute. Why am I an anti-Semite? We're both saying the same thing. Jews control pornography. It's that simple. Uh, why is that uh, anti? It's only anti-Semitic if you say it, and it's uh, uh, yeah. Jews control pornography, and pornography is bad. Then you're an anti-Semite. But what Abrams does, he says, yeah, Jews can all control pornography, and that's good because pornography liberates your sexuality. Well, that's preposterous, but that's what they say, and that's what Weimar and the United States have in common. I've been saying this for a while now, and people. People either agree, like 100% agree with me, or they want to kill me. And it's like, something's going to happen. Something, I, I saw a video the other day on Twitter of one of these drag queens walking out of some place where they just dance for children. And, and, you know, a couple parents were walking and screaming at them. And, it, you know, it was on video. The cops were there and everything. And I'm telling people in three to six months, it's not just going to be screaming. So what is the what do you think the end game is for all this? Where where do they want this to go? Well, that's that's a, the, the good question here is, uh, I mean, look, this, let, let me back up a little bit. This is what got me started thinking about the, the Jewish uh, control of our culture. And I wrote the book, The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, to, in order to come to some grips with what's going on here. And I traced it back to the crucifixion of Christ. Uh, uh, Christ is the Logos incarnate. Logos is reason, limit, order. And they killed the Logos incarnate. This is an attack on Logos. When, you're, when you attack Logos in this fundamental way, you become a revolutionary. And that's what they've been ever since. Now, what do they have in common? The Jews have this hatred of Logos, which leads them to a position where they don't respect any limits. There's no such thing as limit for this type of person, which means that they push it until you get pushback, until they get pushback. That's exactly, the, that's the problem with uh, the Jewish revolutionary spirit. It has no internal limits. It will keep expanding, expanding until it runs into a force that usually it creates by reaction, which is bigger than it, and then that force will stop it. Uh, now, the question is, that's exactly what happened in Germany with the rise of Hitler. And Hitler had the support of large numbers of the German people because those German people saw Jewish Bolshevism as an existential threat to the existence, the continued existence of Germany as a culture. They were right. They were right. The same thing uh, is now happening in the United States. Our culture is being undermined, and it's being undermined by the same group of people that have this constant itch, this constant compulsion to subvert uh, the dominant culture in which they live, to subvert the moral order, because they hate any sense of logos, any sense of order, or any sense of limit. I was having a conversation with someone this morning and, you know, we we're basically saying, but a lot of, a lot of Jews are, have nothing to do with this. They're just going about their lives and everything. And, you know, one thing that we brought up was, and yet they still seem to vote Democrat on the whole. 
as well, a people. Let, let, and I'm talking about the people on the street, you know? Right. Let me give you a better example. Now, this document, uh, Alito's brief uh, in the Supreme Court got leaked, and which it looks as if the uh, Supreme Court is over, going to overturn Roe versus Wade, which is the decision that struck down all abortion laws in the United States of America. Now, what group has come to the fore full of outrage about this? Did you notice there's one group? Have you noticed this? Well, the Jews have come forward and they have made a, a completely unique argument. I've been around for 50 years, uh, you know, listening, almost 50 years of Roe versus Wade. Never heard this argument before. It was basically the ADL and or the rabbis are all united. They say abortion is a fundamental Jewish value. If you prohibit access to abortion, you will prevent Jews from practicing their religion. I said, for once, I, I agree that. with the ADL. For once, <laughs> I agree with the ADL. This is absolutely right. So I tweet, abortion is a Jewish sacrament. Well, they get upset with that. Now, now that's me, the Catholic, because uh, ca sacrament is a Catholic word. But it's basically saying the same thing. So the, the Jews get upset with me and they write in they're on my whatever account I'm on and they start telling me, that's awful to say that. You can't say. I said, who are you? Who are you? I mean, you're you're some poor schmuck. Nobody knows who you are. Uh, are you the Jewish Pope? You're going to say that the ADL can't speak for Jews? They think they can. You know, I mean, I, great. You, the guy, you, you're, you're against abortion. That's wonderful. But you're the exception that proves the rule. And then he brings up Joe Biden. Well, Joe Biden's a Catholic. Yeah, that's what I just said. The exception proves the rule. Joe Biden's the exception. The Catholics are the one group that has stood firm on abortion in America for 50 years. And now the tide is heading in their direction. You know, so the, the interesting thing here is this is the Jewish hatred of, of Logos and they can't control themselves. They're making asses out of themselves. They're they're really uh, I don't think anybody, any of them understand what they're doing, because now what you're saying here is that with Roe versus Wade, the Jews got to impose their religion on the entire United States of America. And the, the flip side of the coin is now if Roe goes down and you get to this debate in the state houses about whether the state should ban abortion, you don't have an argument anymore because you've already said this is your religion and you have no right to impose your religion on the rest of us. So this was, uh, you know, what Hegel would call the cunning of reason. Great moment. Uh, where they, they these Jewish organizations showed their hand. It was remarkable when I saw that it that they were relating it to like Jewish rights, like almost like they it was a part of who they are. And that's, that's what they're saying. That's exactly what they're saying. And you can't help but notice that when it comes to the Jew to the Jewish population, is their abortion rates are lower than everyone else's, while they're basically saying, "Hey." We need this to be out there. They're always at war with the majority population. They're always a minority wherever they are. Uh, and they're always at war with the majority. And one of the ways you can weaken the majority is get them to kill their own children. What a really good way to do it. And to convince them that it's a right. I think a bunch of ladies just showed up at a WNBA game last night and took off their shirts and started running around bare-breasted on the basketball court. 
to prove their point. I, I thought this is interesting. This probably the first time in a WNBA uh, game ever became interesting. <laughs> That's just great. Uh, all right. Well, let, I think we gave everybody a lot to chew on. Um, please plug whatever you want to plug and uh, we'll end this. Yeah. Everything that I've mentioned to, tonight is in, is uh, in better form in the books that I've written. More detail, more footnotes. Uh, if you're contesting what I'm saying, you need to go to the book. So Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, Logos Rising, uh, all of my books are available at culturewars.com. Go there. Do not go to Google. Do not search anywhere. Just go to culturewars.com and you will be able to buy those books. I can attest to that. That is 100% true. Dr. Jones, I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you. 